good to be back with you in Sunday school again. Uh, I always love preaching, but it's fun to get back into teaching and then vice versa, and so it's good to be back. We're going to be covering some topics which uh, I'm very excited about. They are near and dear to my heart. I know for many of you they are as well, particularly uh, associationalism, or we could just say interchurch communion. For the month of June, by the Lord's grace, we're going to cover paragraphs 14 and 15 of chapter 26. That concludes the chapter on the church. And then we're going to cover paragraphs 1 and 2 of chapter 27 on the communion of the saints. Those are the only two paragraphs for chapter 27. Now, chapter 27 is interesting because it would seem, and we're going to actually look at those paragraphs today, it would seem that perhaps that material would have been better placed in chapter 26 on the church. It's about our union with Christ, his headship, which is a topic earlier on in chapter 26, um, as well as our communion with one another, which seems to be appropriate for the church. Nevertheless, it's put in a separate chapter Part of me wonders if the reason for this, I haven't been able to substantiate this, but the Second London, as well as the Westminster and the Savoy, all have these in two separate chapters of the church and then uh, the communion of the saints. Part of me wonders if that's patterned after the Apostles' Creed, which you know says, you know, I believe in uh, the Holy, one holy apostolic church, the communion of the saints, right? So they're very much related. That's why they follow one another but they're not the same thing, and maybe that's what they were doing um, in making them two separate chapters. However, the chapters are so related, I'm going to incorporate all of chapter 27 into today's lecture on paragraph 14 for chapter 26. I just really want to show Jason how much I can cram into one lecture, and I figured I could get multiple chapters, right? Um, but, but you'll see why. Some of the, the wording is identical, and the concepts are very related, and so it will make sense that we incorporate it into paragraph 14. Furthermore, in doing this, kind of in, in mixing that into this, it will give us some more time uh, to spend talking about some other issues related to paragraphs 14 and 15. Um, it's, it's a bit out of order, but I think it will give us a bit more time. I just told everyone I'm going to establish a record for how many paragraphs covered in one Sunday school. So just to beat you. So. Okay, all right, yeah. All right. Well, today we are in paragraph 14, okay? Paragraphs 14 and 15 in, introduce a new subtopic of chapter 26, namely interchurch communion. Much of what has been said up to this point in chapter 26 has either considered the church broadly, in the sense of the universal church, all the faithful, or more narrowly, considering just the particular church. And yet we could say in paragraphs 14 and 15, we kind of encounter both. We encounter the universal larger body of Christ as well as the local church in interchurch communion. To say it another way, paragraphs 14 and 15 make us wrestle through the implications for the local church of her being part of the larger body of Christ. Are there any implications of the fact that one little church is connected organically to something larger than itself? 
Are there any obligations and duties upon that one little church? Or can it just keep on doing its own thing? Does it have any obligations to others as well? We will see that indeed it does. We may distinguish, and we ought to distinguish, the universal church from the local, but we can never separate them from one another. And this really comes out in paragraphs 14 and 15. Well, today in paragraph 14, what we're going to really see is that paragraph 14, all it's going to kind of do is establish the basis, the purpose, the nature, if you will, of interchurch communion. Those aren't points for you note takers, I'm sorry, um, but that's kind of the scope of what 14 is going to do. It's going to establish the rationale for interchurch communion. It's going to argue that it is, it is a thing and that therefore we have obligations. Paragraph 15, on the other hand, is going to flesh out what those obligations look like a bit more. It's going to flesh out how interchurch communion, um, how it will take place at times, as well as establishing some very important guidelines for what interchurch communion does not mean, namely that it does not take away the power of the local church, okay? Now, as we go through paragraph 14 in the next two weeks, besides just walking through it positively, I want to interact with a few things negatively in the sense that I'm going to deal with two specific errors as they relate to interchurch communion. These errors are really more modern-day Baptist errors um, and to some degree are even in Reformed Baptist circles in some ways, okay? Now, I want to spend time on them not to... uh, I don't have access to grind. I'm not trying to alienate anyone. Maybe someone will listen and and join us, right? I, I hope so. I hope I can do it winsomely. But I want to clarify some things because, first of all, some of you or many of us come from larger Baptist modern-day Baptist circles, okay? And you can imbibe some of this kind of thinking about interchurch communion. Uh, particularly, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be taking aim at the SBC, um, though with, you know, <laughs> Jeremy's like, yes. <laughs> um, but we want to clarify some things uh, that is maybe a little bit off in many Baptist circles today about the reason for our interchurch communion. On the other hand, I want to defend our practice and interpretation of, the, of Scripture and the confession on having formal church associational membership, okay? I want to defend that, and I'm going to interact with some people on that. Um, as I said, the first, the first errors, the first one I have in mind is more of a modern-day one. Uh, I guess it could be found in other Baptist groups. You I was thinking of my former fundies here. Uh, maybe you can let me know if, that, if this is a thing too. But this is the idea that the main purpose, or perhaps even the only purpose, of interchurch communion is really just to further the cause of missions. Uh, if I could summarize it in one word, why do we work with other churches? Cooperation. Cooperation. That's kind of the buzzword Um, That is certainly true to some degree, and we are currently cooperating with our sister churches in the association. Nevertheless, biblically, confessionally, historically, Baptists have based their interchurch communion on something much more deeper and fundamental than mere shared goals and objectives. 
And if I were to put that in another word, by contrast, instead of cooperation, I would say communion. Communion. That's the basis of it, okay? Uh, the next, next week, the other error we'll look at, uh, and I want to be, be careful with the term error here, because that can mistake, maybe. Uh, I, I disagree with them, but I want to be careful not to alienate anyone who, who might be listening. Um, but here I have in mind those Reformed Baptists um, who largely hold to our confession, but I would say are wrong in how they hold paragraph 14. Now, if they're listening to this, they're going to say, uh, I fully hold to the confession, and I get that. I'm not trying to call you a liar uh, or insult you. Um, there are many godly intelligent man in this camp, but I, I think they're wrong, and I don't think the matter's unimportant, okay? Again, the error I have in mind here is opposition to any kind of formal, explicit associationalism. It's an opposition to a formal, explicit associationalism, opting instead for an informal, more personal one. Maybe a way to describe this uh, well, I'm not trying to, I don't know if they would agree with this, but um, if you've ever encountered someone who rejects formal church membership in general, uh, I grew up going to a church that, that rejected that, take kind of a lot of that understanding and just apply it on a bigger scale, not between members entering into covenant, but churches formally being in an association together. Um, it is my position that not only is that biblical, confessional, it's, it's historical, um, but I think if you had rejected that, the, the framers of our confession would have not, they would have seen you as out of line uh, with the confession. And the, the main way I know that, you know how you know that? They started a bunch of formal associations. That was like very common, okay? So I don't want to uh, alienate anyone. I will say this, there have been times in Sovereign Joy's history when in our time of need, without naming names, some of these brethren came to our aid and helped us. It's not that they hate churches. We don't want to misrepresent them, that they're hard-hearted. Um, they just they, they have an opinion that I think is incorrect on this. So we'll, we'll deal with that more next week, okay? All right. Any questions before we start? Well, that's my introduction. Let's go ahead and get down to paragraph 14. If you have your confession of faith, open up to chapter 26, paragraph 14. I'm going to read through all of it. It says, As each church and all the members of it are bound to pray continually for the good and prosperity of all the churches of Christ in all places, and upon all occasions to further it, every one within the bounds of their places and callings and the exercise of their gifts and graces, so the churches, when planted by the providence of God, so as they may enjoy opportunity and advantage for it, ought to hold communion among themselves for their peace, increase of love, and mutual edification. All right. Now, first off here, we have to do a little confessional textual criticism. And what I mean by that is there are different versions of this paragraph that I encountered, which threw me off. Some of you here may have a version of the confession that reads this way, um, but it slightly changes the meaning, and we want to clear that, clarify that. In fact, 
I use an app that has a lot of Reformed confessions. That was wrong. Um, and my Bible software that, that has some of the confessions, that was wrong too, okay? Um, and if you miss that, it'll make sense, but it, it kind of tweaks a few things. Uh, the version I'm gonna, the version I just read was the correct version. It's from the 1677. Uh, it's also the later American version, the 1742, okay? Um, the incorrect one says this. Starting with the phrase, and upon all occasions, do you see that or says that? Upon all occasions to further everyone within the bounds of their places and callings. Now, it deleted the word it. Does anyone have a, phrase, uh, a version that says that? Is it an app? It's an app, right? It doesn't have the word it. If you delete the word it, what is being furthered is not it. Okay? which is referring to something else which is important, but what is being furthered is everyone within the bounds of their places and callings. The problem is that is a parenthetical phrase in the original. Okay, So uh, if, if you have a digital copy, I can't help you. <laughs> Maybe make a mental note. If your uh, printed out one does this, this is how you can correct it. Um, simply add the word it with a little arrow, maybe uh, right after the word further, so that it's further it, okay? And then put an opening parenthesis at every one, and then close the parenthesis after the phrase gifts and graces, okay? Hopefully not too complicated. It will change the meaning. We'll see, all right? So, okay. Having done that, perhaps the best way to start seeing this paragraph is to kind of see uh, a big picture overview of it. There's a lot of little, as we can just see, parenthetical statements. There's a lot of details, and you can kind of get lost in all the details. So maybe a way to understand it is to chop it in half and see it as like the first half of the paragraph and the second, and note that there's kind of an argument that's being made from the first to the second. It's kind of a syllogism, and it's kind of like this. If A, then B, okay? If A, then B. That's the big picture argument. You can see it begins with, as each church, okay? As each church. Then I would say the second half begins with, so the churches. You can kind of see an argument there. As each church, something, something, so all the churches, right? That's kind of the flow of the argument. Um, really what's happening here is that the first part is establishing a principle of duty and obligation that each church has towards other true churches in the universal body of Christ. And it's going to use language of duty and obligation, okay? The second part then comes in and says, therefore, it follows from these duties and obligations that these churches ought to hold communion together, okay? So because of their duties and they're in the universal body of Christ, they ought therefore to hold communion together. And I would say that doesn't just mean a spiritual informal, but in fact a formal communion, okay? All right. Well, let's look at the first half of the paragraph. It says or the, the first, yeah, first half of the paragraph. As each church and all the members of it are bound to pray continually for the good and prosperity 
of all the churches of Christ in all places and upon all occasions to further it, everyone within the bounds of their places and callings in the exercises of their gifts and graces. First thing to note here is that each church and the members of it, okay? So you guys individually, and we'll see this too, the universal body of Christ does not just have obligations of the church, but it even goes down to the individual, okay? They have an obligation to pray for the good and prosperity of all the churches of Christ. Now, it simply says that they are bound to do this, as each church and all the members of it are bound. Here, we might ask, what what binds them? It doesn't really say. It just kind of says that they are bound. But we might ask, what binds them? There are many things, I suppose, uh, scriptural commands and examples on the one hand. For example, one of the uh, proof texts for this paragraph is Ephesians 6, 18. Paul says that they are to, with all prayer and petition at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. So he's commanding one local church, the Ephesians there, to pray for all the saints. That binds us. It's a scriptural command. We could also say, though, that more fundamentally, they are simply bound by the fact that they are a church of Christ, and therefore they ought to pray for other churches of Christ. They are members of the same spiritual body. It is here, then, that I would like us to look over at paragraphs 1 and 2 of chapter 27. So if you have your confession, look at paragraphs 1 and 2 of chapter 27. Those two paragraphs really expand and build on this idea of obligations and duties and therefore being bound to one another. In fact, a lot of the same terms are used, okay? So if you have that, go ahead. We'll, we'll read these. I'm not going to comment too much on them. They're fairly explanatory, self-explanatory, but they really establish this obligation and duty. It says in paragraph one, all saints that are united to Jesus Christ, their head by his spirit and faith, although they are not made one person, they are not made thereby one person with him, just a little guarded note, you don't you don't become the second person of the Trinity. That's not what the union means, okay? But it goes on. Uh, it says, They have fellowship in his graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. So we're united to one another. But then it continues. And be, or I'm sorry, we're united to Christ. Then it continues. And being united to one another in love... They have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, in an orderly way, as do conduce to their mutual good, both in the inward and outward man. So kind of like chapter 26, it, it starts with union with Christ or headship to Christ, right? The church is united to its head. And yet, because all the members are united to the head, they are united to one another. From this, then, they have communion. There is love. There's the word um, ob obliged to the performance of duties. Um, and it's all because we are one body, okay? Look at paragraph two. It continues this. 
Saints by profession are bound to maintain an holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God and in performing such other spiritual services as tend to their mutual edification, as also in relieving each other in outward things according to their several abilities and necessities, which communion, according to the rule of the gospel, though especially to be exercised by them in the relation wherein they stand, whether in families or churches, yet as God offereth opportunity is to be extended to all the household of faith, even all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. Nevertheless, their communion with one another as saints doth not take away or infringe the title or property which each man, each man hath in his goods and possessions. So we're not communists. There's no commune. There, are, uh, there is personal property, okay? Um, but the, the bigger picture, again, is this idea of the duties and obligations, um, and, and it's to, to one another. And then notice, as God giveth opportunity to the whole household of faith. So just, just note then, perhaps you've already seen some similar terms in these with paragraph 14. They are bound to do this. We see that it uses the language of gifts and graces in paragraph uh, 1, which we'll see gets used in paragraph 14 as well. It mentions their mutual edification. It mentions having an opportunity to serve the whole household of faith. And this is all, again, within our communion of one another. It, it, it has these obligations that it brings to bear and that's kind of the first part of what it means in paragraph 14 when it says, we are bound, okay? We are bound. Well, back to 14, what are they bound to? Well, first it says to pray continually for the good and prosperity of all the churches of Christ. Now, that little phrase right there, the good and prosperity of all the churches of Christ, is very important for this whole paragraph. In fact, this is why we had to make sure we were reading the correct version, because that word it that some of uh, the versions delete, the it is the good and prosperity of all the churches. It's just being referenced a little bit later. So for example, start again at the beginning with me. As each church and all the members of it are bound to pray continually for the good and prosperity of all the churches in all places, and upon all occasions to further it, to further the good and prosperity of all the churches. Okay? Dr. Renahan uh, explains in his book, he says, the words, the good and prosperity of all the churches, is a central concept throughout this article. That's why it's important. It's a very important it. We are not just to pray, but to seek to further the good and prosperity of all the churches. Furthermore, note that it says at the end of the paragraph, the churches ought to hold communion among themselves for their, priest, their, their peace, increase of love, and mutual edification. That is very much explaining to us what the good and prosperity of all the churches is that we're to seek. We are to seek to further their peace, increase of love, and mutual edification. Okay? All right. 
The last thing to note in this first half of the paragraph before we do a bit of application is that parenthetical statement. There's actually two phrases that kind of interpret one another. But it says, everyone within the bounds of their places and callings, the exercise of their gifts and graces. That explains how each church and the members of it are to further the good and prosperity of all the churches. How do they further it? Everyone within the bounds of their places and callings and the exercise of their gifts and graces. Now, Dr. Renahan's very helpful here to note that the meaning of the word, um, particularly places, uh, for us today, we tend to read that, or the bounds, like a boundary of your place, we tend to read that in geographical terms. That's not how it's being used here, and it had a different meaning at the time, particularly that of rank, someone's rank. Now, it's not the rank of a social rank, but the rank of officers, okay? And perhaps you, you know, sometimes we do use the word place to speak of rank. Um, I guess we don't, no one would ever say this in church, but we might say, you need to learn your place, right? We mean, you need to learn your, your rank. There's a chain of authority or something here. You're, you're, you're acting out of your place. That's kind of what it's getting at. Um, and yet it's not a social rank, but it's the rank of those who are officers and some who are not. Furthermore, this helps us to understand the term calling. Um, each of us have a calling, but that calling will look differently depending on whether you're a church officer or not. Um, how I go and serve the larger body of Christ is going to be different because of my rank. My calling is different. Um, Jason and I went to participate in an ordination earlier this year, uh, or was that last year? I don't remember, sometime recently. Um, well, that's something that elders were called to do, you know? Uh, we might get called to examine a man for future ministry, as we did in the same case. Um, it's not going to look like that with every member, though, but it will be according to their own calling. In fact, this is what it's getting at with the next phrase. It says, in the exercise of their gifts and graces. This, again, is qualifying how someone will serve the larger of body in their unique calling. It will be according to their unique gifts and graces. The difference between gifts and graces is this. Someone might have a phenomenal gift of preaching, but very little graces, meaning very little holiness, very little Christ-likeness, very little humility. On the other hand, someone might have very tiny, meager gifts, but have great graces. They are, they are towering giants. So that's kind of the difference between the two. And all of us, whether officers or not, have spiritual gifts and spiritual graces that can be used for the benefit of the church. You may not have the gift of teaching, but you may have the gift of hospitality. You may not have uh, the gift of uh, administration or ruling, but you may have the gift of mercy. And each of us in our own gifts can serve. Furthermore, everyone has a gift, but we can say you have no gift at all. You just have great love, the greatest of all grace. Well, that's a huge blessing to all the churches of God. So each of us in our own gifts and graces can further the good and prosperity of the churches. 
I would just say here, on a personal note, to encourage the members, um, I would encourage you, as much as you can, get involved in associational life. I get that it's hard, and on the one hand, it's like, well, we send the pastor to do that, kind of, um, but we all have an obligation to the larger body of Christ. Um, you will not know of opportunities to exercise your gifts and graces unless you are trying to stay informed and trying to get connected to that larger body. Um, I, I get it. The meetings are always in the middle of the week. It's like when people are working. It's, it's not hard or it's not easy. But, but if you can, take advantage of that. Come to an associational meeting with us. Um, you will find opportunities, ways that you can serve the larger body of Christ. According to our confession, that is an obligation upon all of us, not just pastors who go to associational meetings, okay? All right. Let's stop there. I'm going to take a breath. Um, any questions or thoughts before we move on? You'll, you, will, you will not only find opportunities, you yourself will be blessed. Uh, and the more we have that inner church communion between the pastors, uh, I'm sorry, between the members of the churches, just the richer those bonds get. And so it's hard, I get it. Um, but if you can, just, hey, we have four quarterly meetings uh, a year. If you could just take one and just take one day, um, I get it, that shows a high priority, but I guarantee you'll be blessed. I can't tell you how many times um, you hear of a situation, right? Or maybe someone in another church who's going through something, and you go, I've, I've gone through that. I could pray for them. Or that might be you. Maybe you're not being asked to give pastoral counsel in these association meetings, but they might tell you, well, we have a member in our church who's going through this thing, and you go, I went through that two years ago. Maybe I could give them a call, right? There's, there's all kinds of little ways, um, and, and we are all obliged to this in one way or another, right? So, okay. All right, well, with the time we have left, what I want to do then, uh, with the importance of the phrase, the good and prosperity of all the churches and their peace and increase of love and mutual edification, I want to point to what I think is the main the main purposes that our confession gives for our holding communion together, namely the good and prosperity of the churches. 
Now, think about this with me. What is conspicuously missing here? What is missing that is it's not necessarily excluded, but it's also not mentioned as a reason? Anybody, anybody want to sin boldly? What? Missions. There's nothing about missions here. Uh, note that there's also nothing really about unbelievers. It's very much focused on the household of faith, right? The good and prosperity of all the churches. I think this shows the emphasis of our confession. Um, not that cooperation in missions is excluded, but we might say that by not mentioning it, the confession sees our rationale for interchurch communion as namely in the fact that we are one in the body of Christ and we are to seek good for the household of faith. Okay? That's interesting. And it's important. As I said, in our own day, I'm going to pick on Southern Baptist, though technically, I mean, Sovereign Joy is a Southern Baptist church at this point, okay? So um, for Southern Baptists, the purpose of conventions and associations is really seen either being exclusively or maybe just primarily for the purpose of cooperation in church planting and missions. Why do we hold communion? Why, why do we do this? Because we can accomplish more together. Um, that's, that's very much the viewpoint. Um, I heard a lecture years ago uh, by one of my former professors at California Baptist University, which is a Southern Baptist school. Um, he himself, his name is Dr. Chris Morgan, he now pastors um, one of what I would say is the flagship SBC churches in Southern California, called Emmanuel, um, and, and he pastors there. He's a bona fide Southern Baptist, okay? Um, but he explained years ago in a lecture that particularly in the Baptist faith and message, the purpose of associations is for cooperation. And he noted that that's just kind of a different way than Baptists have historically spoke, okay? So for example, listen to the Baptist faith and message, Article 15, entitled cooperation. Christ's people should, as occasion requires, organize such associations and conventions as may best secure cooperation for the great objects of the kingdom of God. Okay? Members of the New Testament churches should cooperate with one another in carrying forward the missionary, educational, and benevolent ministries for the extension of Christ's kingdom. Listen to this. This is interesting. Christian unity in the New Testament sense is a spiritual harmony and voluntary cooperation for common ends by various groups of Christ's people. So note, it does mention spiritual harmony, but it's in the larger, con the larger idea of cooperating together, and that is their definition of Christian unity, that we can work together, Okay. My former professor has this to say, though, about this. It's quite helpful. He says, It is unclear what to make of this, but the language of cooperation, rather than the language of church unity, has emerged as the basis for working together. While a fine term in what it stresses, cooperation, after all, is better than no cooperation, it seems to shift the approach from 
We work together because we are united together in Christ to cooperating because of shared goals and mission, which is also good but less substantial. This inadvertently grounds our unity in practical concerns rather than on a theology of church unity. That's very true. And it might sound like a very subtle change, but it's, it's quite important. And in fact, if you are familiar with the SBC, even the way they speak of their affiliation with one another, it's in terms not of communion, but cooperation. Um, if you are in communion, they say we are in friendly cooperation with the Southern Baptist Convention. If you're not, um, so I think Rick Warren technically right now, Saddleback is not in friendly cooperation, but, but that's like the language of the whole convention in a lot of ways. And it's just kind of a different way historically from thinking about this. Well, why is that problematic? We get that it's different. Why is that maybe a problem? What do you guys think? Or what, what might that little subtle shift produce? Tom? Yeah, yeah, and we're not, this, I'm not saying the early Baptists were against cooperation, nor do we want to say that we don't do this, we do. We're currently cooperating to, in our, to the Texas Association to work with two church plants, right? Um, we are concerned with those things, um, but what happens if you make that good thing the main reason for being together? Yeah. Yeah. Joe? Yeah, and I would say to that point, Joe, sometimes, and I've heard of this, I'm sure Jason will be familiar, there can be a sense that anything that's not related to missions is petty and a distraction from the main thing. So you, you can kind of hear Rick Warren talking this way right now. 
oh, you guys are just distracted. I'm trying to keep the main thing, the main thing, missions. And it's like, oh, okay, yeah, sure. But you're also destroying the good and prosperity of churches by the false doctrine you're bringing in, right? So you can push things under the rug if it's just about missions, right? All right, well, one thing I want to say here is this is a major shift from the emphasis um, that older Reformed Baptists have had. One thing that earlier Baptist brethren understood is that because we are all members of one universal body in Christ, that therefore the relationship between individual churches is analogous to the relationship between the individual members of a particular church. And if you see that, if you see that analogy, you can see why we have communion. It's not primarily because we can do more together, though that's true. You know why? Because we need one another, just as the hand needs the rest of the body, or the head needs the hand. We're not all the body, we are members of one body. The Abingdon Association, which was a regional association of early particular Baptists, when they formed their association in 1652, they said this, particular churches stand bound to hold communion, each with each other, for which conclusion we render these scriptural reasons. Okay? The first one is this, because there is the same relation betwixt the particular churches, each towards the other, as there is betwixt particular members of one church. For the churches of Christ do all make up one body or church in general under Christ their head. Therefore, we conclude that every church ought to manifest its care over other churches as fellow members of the same body of Christ in general do rejoice and mourn with them according to the law of their near relation in Christ. Why do we do things together and have inner church communion? Well, you might as well say, well, if I'm the mouth, why do I need the hand? If I'm the head, why do I need the feet? We're part of the same body, and we are to have a care for one another. Notice that the association uses the language of rejoicing and mourning with one another. They're specifically taking that from 1 Corinthians 12, which we looked at several months ago. Think of 1 Corinthians 12, 21. Paul says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. We could say by analogy, one church cannot say to one another, unless you help me in the Great Commission, I have no need of you. But you do. Great Commission or not, you are part of the same larger body of Christ. Furthermore, this analogy is really helpful for how we ought to think of other churches. 1 Corinthians 12, you have some members of the church who are very gifted in public, and they think they're better than everyone, and they don't need others. You have some who are not very gifted and not very public, and they're thinking, well, if I can't be like that, brother, I don't want to be part of the body. And yet, I think in the universal body of Christ, you can kind of find churches that fit both of those profiles. Big, gifted churches with large resources might be tempted to think, I don't really need you. <laughs> you need me. 
and I have tons of resources, that's fine, I'm happy to oblige you. No, you actually do need them. You're big and you're public, but all members of the body of Christ are necessary. Think again of what Paul says in verse 22. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. Those little weak churches, um, you know, these big fancy churches, they might look at them and kind of, oh man, this would never happen at a Sunday at our church, right? Those which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor, and our less presentable members become much more presentable, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to the member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. That's why we have inner church communion. We're one body in Christ. We're, we're not, you know, it doesn't get rid of the independence of the local church. Of course, we're talking about the universal body, but it does have obligations on us much bigger than the mere fact that we can do more together, okay? Now, we'll see next week. For all those reasons, because we're one, we ought, therefore, to hold communion together. And we'll look at what that phrase means, okay? Any questions there as we wrap?